Naked Pioneers Headed to the Stars, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. Pioneer 10 was the first human-built envoy to Jupiter and the first to pass out of our solar system. We'll talk with the author of a new book about the plucky probe and its sister ships, and, of course, about those revealing plaques they are delivering to E.T. Something tells me what's up is happening at the zoo, where Bruce Betts will offer up a new space trivia contest, and Emily will provide a breath of fresh, though thin, Martian air right after these headlines. IBM has announced something called the World Community Grid. The effort is intended to use millions of personal computers to provide a gigantic distributed computing platform for scientific projects. If this sounds familiar to you SETI-at-home participants, it's for good reason. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence project paved the way for this new effort, virtually inventing grid computing. We'll have more on this story next week. The new Spitzer Space Telescope orbiting the Earth is returning data that may help distant Pluto keep its status as a planet. Other recently discovered objects that are even farther from the Sun seem to be somewhat smaller than first thought. And NASA has just concluded an international workshop. The Washington session considered opportunities and possible collaborations in missions that are part of the U.S. vision for space exploration. You can read much more about these and other stories at planetary.org. I'll be back with author Mark Wolverton right after Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, what happened to Mars's ancient atmosphere? Most, but not all, scientists agree that during Mars's early history, the atmosphere was much thicker than it is today. This argument is commonly based on the observation of dry riverbeds on the oldest Martian terrain. At some point, water ran freely on the Martian surface, but today the low atmospheric pressure precludes the possibility. Where did all that gas go? One possible place is the rocks themselves. Carbon dioxide can dissolve in water and combine with metal ions to form carbonate minerals. This is what happened to Earth's original supply of carbon dioxide, which is now locked into huge deposits of carbonate rocks such as limestone. But many scientists believe that the primordial atmosphere managed to escape Mars entirely. Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out how. Journalist Mark Wolverton started out writing magazine articles about the Pioneer series of spacecraft. He soon realized, though, that the dramatic and sometimes controversial story of these trailblazing probes was worthy of a book, so he wrote one. The Depths of Space is subtitled The Story of the Pioneer Planetary Probes. Mark Wolverton, thanks very much for joining us on Planetary Radio. Thank you, Matt. If we can, I want to start with a line from the very first chapter of your book and uh, preface that by saying you make reference a number of times in the book to Dan Golden, the uh, just-passed administrator of NASA, and his famous uh, slogan, Faster, Better, Cheaper. In the book, you say, Even considering and comparing the political and budgetary realities of Pioneer's time with those of the Golden Era, the Pioneer Project, dollar for dollar, spacecraft for spacecraft, and mission for mission, is still the most efficient, cost-effective, longest-lived, and most successful series of deep space probes ever created. That is a pretty strong statement. Well, I think, um, really, when you when you look at the 
overall pioneer project um, and consider the number of firsts that uh, that it gave us for the for the money and even translating it into uh, current dollars and consider the fact that the pioneer program really had no major failures um, when I talked to a lot of the uh, the pioneer the pioneer veterans and people who had worked on the project some, some of them said well we were doing this faster better cheaper before Dan Golden came up with this snappy phrase for it but but we did it the right way because you can really you can do any two of those things and get away with it. But if you do try to do all three, you can get into trouble. Uh, and I think the Pioneer program just demonstrated how you can do all of those things and still have a very successful uh, successful program. And we should probably mention that when we talk about the Pioneer series uh, in your book, you primarily are dealing with Pioneer six on through the Pioneer Venus orbiter, actually. Right. The actual program, the Pioneer program or project, started with uh, Pioneer 6. But actually, within the Pioneer program, they actually it gets even more confusing because they used uh, letters to distinguish each mission before they were launched, hmm. starting with A. So Pioneer 6 is actually also Pioneer A until it was launched, and Pioneer 7 was Pioneer B, and so on. So... And this was because NASA got a little bit worried about, you know, let's not give them a number until they're actually up there doing the job. Right. And that, that's official. And I, and I know that from Pioneer 6 on, another thing that united these probes was where they came from, which is a key part of your story, the Ames Research Center in Northern California. Right. It was the first major space program that Ames had done at that time. Before then, uh, all the unmanned probes were launched by um, by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, as really they still are, mostly. But at that time, NASA was kind of looking for another um, another center within NASA to um, to handle some more of the unmanned uh, the unmanned program and take a, take a little bit of it away from uh, JPL and kind of spread it out a bit. And the people at NASA Ames uh, campaigned for this, and they they were managed to get the uh, the nod from NASA headquarters. There was no shortage of heroes in this story of the uh, the Pioneer series, but uh, it does seem like uh, if you had to pick one person who uh, really should most be identified with these successes, it's this fellow Charlie Hall. Oh, absolutely. He was the project manager uh, from the very beginning until the end. And he's he was a guy who um, is a very strong leader, a very charismatic leader. As I interviewed various people that had worked under him on the project, I was struck by how universally admired and respected he was. I don't think I've ever heard of any other human being who so everybody just really, um, really, really strongly uh, respected and remembered. And everyone had at least one story about Charlie Hall. He's one of those guys that uh, people just tell these uh, war stories about or <laughs> legends about. I think he really was the key, uh, the key factor behind the success of the Pioneer Program. When you look at the pioneers, uh, the whole series that he worked on, but in particular the big stars, Pioneer 10 and 11, they really were kept very simple. I mean, these weren't really smart spacecraft, but I guess that was uh, part of their genius. It really was. That's one reason why uh, they lasted much, much longer than they had ever been designed for. Um, Pioneer 10 and 11 were really just designed to get as far as Jupiter. They were only supposed to last several years, and they both kept operating. Well, Pioneer 10, we... We lost contact with that last year, which was over 30 years after it was launched from Earth. And that, that certainly was the key philosophy, just keep it simple. Um, Charlie Hall always insisted that if something, if we, you're not sure if something works or not, it's not going to go in the spacecraft. We want them to be very reliable, uh, because the more complicated it is, the more things there are that can go wrong. And that, that even went into something as, as 
fundamental as the stabilization of the spacecraft. With um, unmanned spacecraft, there are basically two ways you can you can maneuver them. One is to what they call three-axis stabilization, which is basically you have thrusters that will maneuver it around the pitch, yaw, and roll axes. And another is just to have them spinning like a top, as most satellites do, and uh, the Pioneer space probes did. And that's very simple because all you do is when you launch it, you set it spinning, and then because it's in space, there's nothing to slow it down. It just keeps spinning, always pointed in the same direction. Of course, you do have thrusters on it to tweak, tweak the trajectory a little bit here and there. But it's, it's a much simpler and much more, um, much more basic way of stabilizing the spacecraft. And that's one of the hallmarks of the Pioneer spacecraft. All of them are spin-stabilized, which is something that is almost unheard of now with, uh, with space probes. All the, the more sophisticated ones that have followed, such as Voyager and Galileo and Cassini, uh, they're all three-axis stabilized. Meaning they have lots of thrusters and they have to constantly adjust. Right, and uh, it also means they're more expensive and they're heavier yeah. and more complicated. We're talking with Mark Wolverton. He has just written The Depths of Space, the story of the pioneer planetary probes. And uh, Mark, as always happens when I, I uh, know I'm an interview an author and I read that author's book, and I like the book, the book is in front of me and it is full of little green post-it notes that we are <laughs> never going to get to all of in, in the little time we have left. But if we can, after we take a break, I'd like to, to spend the rest of the time mostly talking about the two big stars of the Pioneer series, Pioneer 1011. Okay. We'll be right back with Mark Wolverton after this message. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. You can learn about these adventures and exciting new discoveries from space exploration in the Planetary Report. The Planetary Report is the Society's full-color magazine. It's just one of many member benefits. You can learn more by calling 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. And you can catch up on space exploration news and developments at our exciting and informative website, planetarysociety.org. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio, where this week's special guest is Mark Wolverton. He has written The Depths of Space, the Story of the Pioneer Planetary Probes. It is available from Joseph Henry Press. And as promised, Mark, I want to talk about Pioneers 10 and 11. It's a shame to say, but you do even talk in the book about how these pioneers, in every sense of the word, their fame and their accomplishments have, have almost been uh, left in the background by the big, expensive probes that have followed. But they really were pathfinders. They really were. They were, they were the first. Pioneer 10 was the first to go beyond Mars. Um, before 1972, no one, including the Soviets, had launched any spacecraft that far out. And, of course, many of the craft that we, we had sent to Mars and to Venus had been lost for various reasons. And one of the, one of the major contributions of Pioneer was it, it really opened up the outer solar system. Before Pioneer, before Pioneer 10 specifically, we didn't even know if we would ever be able to go beyond Mars because of the asteroid belt and the radiation environment, if we'd be able to even communicate with spacecraft so really, without the Pioneer 10 and 11 and the, the example, the model that they provided and what they accomplished, 
everything else that followed, including Voyager, would not have been possible. These spacecraft were not only fairly simple in their design, simple to increase reliability, but they were dwarfed by the Voyagers and Galileo and Cassini. Oh, yeah. These are very small. Pioneer 10 and 11 were identical spacecraft, and we're talking the main antenna was only nine feet in diameter, which was the biggest part of the spacecraft. They had three booms that went out from them, but really the main bulk of the spacecraft was about the size of a very small compact car. So compare that to Cassini, which is about the size of a bus, I believe. Yes. One of the uh, innovations, and was almost in, in this uh, out of step with the rest of the design on these spacecraft, is that uh, they realized, uh, Charlie Hall and his crew, that they were going to be too far from the sun for solar cells. Right. They used uh, Pioneer 10 and 11, each carried four uh, RTGs, which is short for radioisotope thermoelectric generators. And what those are are basically um, devices that use a small amount of uh, plutonium-238, and they generate electricity from the heat, uh, from the decay of the plutonium. The solar cells would have had to be so big and and so delicate that this would have been impractical. But the RTGs proved to be quite reliable. They they had been used in some Earth-orbiting satellites uh, before then, but this was the first time they'd really been used on a deep space mission. It was, there was, was a lot of question as to how long they would last, if they would be able to operate and generate power for so long. And, of course, they, they operated for, well, about 30, 30 years or so. Yeah. As you said, I mean, uh, we just lost touch with uh, Pioneer 10 after, I think, 31 years, 7.5 yeah, yeah, billion miles. That's that's pretty good mileage. Over, over 8 billion. They, RTGs have come to uh, gain a little notoriety to be a little controversial, especially since then. But if you had to point to something controversial on Pioneers 10 and 11, it um, probably had a lot to do with uh, something that one of the Planetary Society founders Dr. Carl Sagan had something to do with, and that, of course, was the naked people. Right, on the plaque. Both Pioneer 10 and 11 uh, carry a 6 by 9 inch aluminum gold anodized plaque. There was a science writer named Eric Burgess who initially was was seeing the um, testing of Pioneer 10 at the TRW, which is the company that built the spacecraft. And he realized these were going to be the first spacecraft outside the solar system, and maybe we we should... think about that and put some kind of message on it. And he went to Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan loved the idea. And, he, and Sagan went to Frank Drake, who, of course, is a pioneer of uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, mm-hmm. a radio astronomer. And they took it to NASA, and um, they, they came up with this idea of the plaque and putting a, a message on there. On the plaque, there are scientific information about the hydrogen atom, schematic diagram of the Pioneer spacecraft, a little image of the solar system. Um, there's a map that plots our position in the galaxy. And there are, of course, the two uh, naked human figures. And, of course, the reason for that was that, well, if we're going to show aliens what humans look like, um, our natural state is, is uh, nudity. Therefore, the figures should be nude. You talk about some of the press coverage of this and, and some of the letters that that the team received and uh, one political cartoon that apparently showed a couple of very human-looking aliens looking at the uh, uh, the plaque and, and saying, well, apparently Earthlings are a lot like us, but they don't wear clothing. Right. <laughs> and then there was another one, too, that I liked, which um, uh, shows two little green men, and there are a couple scientists that are standing there and greeting them, and one scientist says to the other that... Uh, 
Um, he says, well, they say they got our message on the Pioneer spacecraft, and they came to, they came to see the naked women. <laughs> you know, I remember I was a teenager at the time, and so I was uh, maybe appropriately embarrassed as a, a slightly shy teenager, but but also being in awe, and I still feel that now. Because of what this represented, in addition to the science returned by these spacecraft, that here was humankind reaching out into the galaxy, sort of saying, you know, we were here, or we are here. Right, exactly. That, that's what I find so compelling about the, the Pioneer craft, especially 10 and 11, which really were the first to go out of the solar system. And, of course, they, they're out there now. They'll be going, Even though we're not in touch with them anymore, they will be going out there indefinitely, and they may be around much longer than, uh, than Earth is. And, we, of course, with, with this message, the plaque, uh, which, of course, Carl Sagan made the observation that uh, it's not only a message uh, from Earth, it's a message to Earth, just in art, not only in showing how we reacted to this idea of the plaque, but also it, it helped to bring, bring back the idea to uh, the population at large that um, we can communicate with extraterrestrials if they're out there. And there, there's a lot more out there that we can do and that we can uh, experience than just our, our earthbound concerns. Talk a little bit about the science that they returned, the discoveries that they made, not only at Jupiter, but uh, Pioneer 11, which was able to reach uh, Saturn. Right. Well, starting with Pioneer 6 through 9, which were solar orbiting craft, they were all placed in orbits around the sun at um, about the same distance as Earth. They gave us our first really global picture of the solar wind and uh, solar activity, solar storms. Uh, that, was, that was quite valuable at the time. That's something that had not been done. Pioneer 10 was the first through the asteroid belt, the first to Jupiter. Gave us our very first close-up look at that planet. It showed conclusively that the Great Red Spot is a, a giant storm in Jupiter's atmosphere. Uh, gave us our first look at the radiation environment around Jupiter. It uh, gave us our first indication that, the Saturn, uh, that Jupiter has a ring. Uh, discovered some new moons. Uh, Pioneer 11, which followed it to Jupiter a year later, kind of filled in the gaps that Pioneer 10 had left. And then, of course, they realized that um, because Pioneer 11 took a somewhat different trajectory past Jupiter, they could actually use that and, and tweak the trajectory a little bit, use Jupiter to whip the spacecraft around and send it on to Saturn, uh, which, of course, was not part of the original mission plan. Both, both Pioneer 10 and 11, the original mission objective was just to go to Jupiter. With, with Saturn, we got another another planet in our in our pocket for the price of price of one, really. And it also demonstrated that it was possible for a spacecraft to cross the ring plane at Saturn, which again is something that was a complete unknown before then. And that is something that reverberates uh, to our own day, I can tell you, because uh, as listeners to this show know, we were covering the uh, orbital insertion of Cassini last summer. I was at JPL. There was remarkably little concern by the scientists there when it came time for that huge spacecraft to cross the ring plane. Why? Because they knew Pioneer had done it, and the Voyager Voyager spacecraft as well. But uh, basically, uh, they'd been able to get over the fear because uh, Pioneer 11 had, had forged the path so many years before. Exactly, and that, of course, was quite in contrast to the fear that was there when Pioneer 11 first went there, because there was some great concern about going through the ring plane and how, how far out the ring material was, was, would go and whether the spacecraft would hit something. Mark Wolverton, I wish we had more time. Uh, there is so much uh, more to this story. All I can do is recommend to people that they uh, get a copy of The Depths of Space, 
The story of the Pioneer Planetary Probes, the new book from Mark Wilverton, which uh, traces the history of the Pioneer series of interplanetary spacecraft. It is available from Joseph Henry Press. It is listed on Amazon. Uh, You can get there directly, or there is a link to Amazon from the planetary.org website. We will have other links on the Planetary Society website, right on the page where you can listen to this radio show. Mark, again, thanks very much for uh, joining us for this conversation about Pioneer. Thank you, Matt. And we'll be right back with more of Planetary Radio, including Bruce Betts and What's Up, after this return visit from Emily. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A about what happened to Mars's atmosphere. Much of Mars's gas may have escaped the planet for good. Repeated impacts of asteroids early in its history could possibly have driven off a volume of gas equal to 100 times the present volume of Mars's atmosphere. A vital clue is the relative amounts of the isotopes of the gases that we can measure today. The isotopes of a given element have the same number of protons and electrons, but different numbers of neutrons. Additional neutrons increase the mass of an atom without changing its chemical properties. Ordinary hydrogen has one proton and no neutrons, and thus has only half the mass of heavy hydrogen, which has one proton and one neutron. Heavy hydrogen, also known as deuterium, does not escape from Mars as readily as light hydrogen, so escape of hydrogen from Mars's atmosphere should leave behind lots more deuterium than you would expect. In fact, we find that deuterium is about six times more abundant on Mars than on Earth, indicating that a large amount of hydrogen has escaped from Mars forever, leaving the present planet dry and without much atmosphere. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now, here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Well, Christmas carolers in the background, it must be time for What's Up? Live from the Los Angeles Zoo? (laughs) Indeed, Matt. We're trying to mix as many things together as possible. (laughs) Keep everyone out there on their toes. So uh, we're at the Los Angeles Zoo. We're researching uh, astrobiological implication of gazelle. (laughs) So Bruce, Bruce Mm. Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. What's up? Well... In the uh, night sky, you can uh, look for stars, but you can also see a lovely planet. Saturn rises around 8 or 9 p.m., rising in the east. You can see it in the constellation Gemini near uh, Castor and Pollux. In the pre-dawn sky, you can still... They really like Castor and Pollux, I guess. (laughs) Right, I forgot that part. Okay, so in the pre-dawn sky, go out there, and you can see Venus still looking extremely bright, looking like the brightest star-like object uh, in the pre-dawn sky. And uh, to its upper right, you will see Jupiter also looking extremely bright. And to Venus's lower left, you may be able to catch Mars, much dimmer and sort of ornish, orangish red. I like ornish. Ornish, ornish. is good, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think I'll be fixing an ornish dressing this year. All right, let's move on to Random Space Fact. feel badly interrupting the singing. 
Thermal inertia is a parameter used by planetary scientists. What the heck does this mean? It's a resistance to heating, resistance to temperature changes. So if you go out, rocks have high thermal inertia. They will heat more slowly in the day, they'll feel cold, and at night, they'll cool more slowly, so they'll feel warm. By looking at the temperature of a surface, you can determine how many rocks and sand and dust and silly things like that are there. It's one of the things I used to do recreationally. Recreationally, I don't doubt it for a moment. Okay, we go on to uh, trivia? On to trivia contest. Uh, We asked you before, who discovered Pluto's moon? Sharon. Please tell us, Matt, how'd we do? Uh, You know what? I have to admit, it's not entirely random this time. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. The sanctity of the show. I know, I know. We're going to hear from the FTC or somebody about this violation. I knew nothing about this. Yeah, Bruce's, it's entirely my responsibility. And that is why our winner this week is Ian Scales. Ian Scales, who hails... You know why I chose him? Not because he said, come on, guys, let's have an EU winner, but because of the name of his town and his even his street... Ian, who lives on Wapping High Street in Wapping, London. Wow, nice. (laughs) I figured he had to be a winner. Besides which, he got it right. He said that Pluto's moon, Charon, uh, was discovered in 1978 by James Christie, and I assume he was correct. That is indeed correct. We had uh, entries like, oh, a whole bunch of entries from all over the world, and a lot of people who uh, explained that uh, James Christie named Sharon that in part because of his wife's name. I guess he couldn't call uh, the moon Charlene, so he came up with the next best mythological thing. And then other people who said that Tombaugh named Pluto, around which Sharon uh, uh, revolves, uh, named it Pluto in part because of Percival Lowell, the astronomer who did a lot of did some uh, you know all sorts of neat stuff in the solar system actually the symbol for pluto if you look at it looks like a p and an l put together we should mention sharon who i had a terrible trouble pronouncing so i appreciate all of you trying to help me was uh mythologically the uh, person who escorted the dead across the river Styx to the hangout of pluto well, Ian, you will be getting that uh, Planetary Radio T-shirt. He even let us know that he needs an extra large. Now the world knows. Bruce, I bet you have something else for us for uh, the coming couple of weeks. I do indeed. If you want to win a Planetary Radio T-shirt, answer the following question. We're talking about Mercury. Tell me the relationship between Mercury's year and its day. Mercury has a particular so-called orbital resonance, just like the moon is in a one-to-one synchronous locked rotation ooh I love using those words around the earth so it always faces one side towards the earth well Mercury is also in a resonance but it's not one to one as was originally thought with the sun it's closer to the sun so there is some tidal effects but it's not one to one tell me what it is which is basically the relationship between Mercury's day and it's here to enter this glorious contest go to planetary.org slash radio and learn how to send email to us and enter this up until now, random contest. And, Bruce, I, I'm going to ask them to go there to get the deadline as well, because we, we have two other announcements we have to make. Do you remember the question you asked last week about getting the new title for the NASA administrator? Yes, indeed, trying to elicit some creative responses. And, and hopefully something that would make the judges, that is, you and I, laugh a little bit. We haven't gotten very many. <laughs> 
So we're going to extend the deadline. Instead of the deadline being, uh, what would it be, the 29th at noon, Monday the 29th, let's make it December 2nd. We'll give them a few more days. December 2nd at noon Pacific time. And if you could just reiterate that uh, contest question one more time briefly. The head of NASA is called the NASA Administrator. I personally think he should have a better title. So please send us what you think the head of NASA should be called, what his title should be. Enter. Make us make us laugh. Entertain us. Yeah. Ideally, give us something that can be repeated. Bruce, we also, before we say goodbye, we want to welcome a whole bunch of new listeners. Yay! KCHO 91.7 in Chico and its sister station KFPR 88.9 in Redding, California. And actually much more than that because they are all over Northern California. They call themselves North State Public Radio. And this is the very first planetary radio to air on North State Public Radio. Yay! Welcome, everyone. I I was a Central Valley guy myself growing up in Sacramento, so Northern California near and dear to my heart. We're done. We're out of time. All right, everyone, look up in the night sky and think about caroling marine mammals. Thank you, and good night. And that was Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society, coming to you live on tape from the Los Angeles Zoo. By the way, that lovely quartet of carolers at the Los Angeles Zoo calls itself a little Dickens. We're a little late. I hope you'll join us again next time for a conversation with SETI at Home's David Anderson. Have a great week, everyone.